All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, we're here for the first session, Designing the Future of Life Insurance. You all to download the app. So those of you who haven't done that, please do that. Um, part of the app is a functionality that allows polling and questions to sort of come through as we're going along. So please do make use of the app. Um, instead of Peter's rule about cell phones ringing and 100 rand fine, I'd like to, to change the rule slightly that if your phone goes off, you have to ask the panelists an insightful question or give us some great commentary that will hopefully focus the mind. As we look to the future of life insurance and designing the future of life insurance, I think it's worth us having a look at 2016. I saw a very interesting little poster to sort of say, has Quentin Tarantino been directing 2016? <laughs> and with all the plot twists we've had, it certainly does feel like that, with the likes of Brexit, an unexpected um, election in the US, and with fees must fall and a number of our own sort of challenges here in South Africa. But where it really comes home to me is that the majority of us in this room are rather disconnected from the rest of the world. And much along the lines of Joan's picture of the ladies working in the, in the sort of rice paddy, I think that we need to spend a lot more time thinking about how we can connect the world and make it a little bit more inclusive. And so on that note, I'd like to just sort of highlight what we as business should be doing. Um, and there's a lot of work that we do do in the industry in terms of trying to sort of create that public-private partnership that was spoken about. Um, and so as a CISA, a lot is done in terms of creating funds for entrepreneurs, creating mentors for, for black industrialists, and creating funding for the missing middle in terms of education. And so we have two bright young actors who are also trying to crack the nuts in our first paper, can savings save South Africa? Um, the first iteration of this paper um, certainly looked as though it was going to solve, solve these problems. And, and apologies, Guy, um, if I poured a little water on that as the moderator of the paper. Um, but I certainly think that it's very exciting. Um, many of you will, will know Guy. He's written papers before, and he's very active um, in, in the society. He works at Old Mutual Corporate, um, been there for a number of years, um, focusing particularly on strategy, innovation and mergers and acquisitions. Um, he's very positive about South Africa and very positive about the world, so much so that he and his actuary wife are about to add to our population growth in February, so we wish him well for that. So that's really putting your money where your mouth is. <laughs> Um, Keegan, his um, co-author, is not here. He also works at Old Mutual, and we give credit to him in his absence um, in the life insurance space, in the retirement space, with 10 years' experience, and at the moment does reporting for the East Africa business. And so, setting that big expectation, I hand over to Guy, who will talk for roughly 30 minutes, and then we'll have 15 minutes for questions, and then I'll introduce Hannah and her paper, and the same rules will apply to hers. Thank you, Guy. All right, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here this morning, opening up the first um, concurrent session. Um, and I think I've got something worth saying this morning. Um, we in the retirement fund industry do a lot of hand-wringing about how to get people to save more for retirement. And in one of those uh, conversations, I became interested in the question, uh, what would it do for our country if we got that right? Another way to put that is, although there's a very real and obvious personal uh, imperative for people to save for their own retirements, is there a national reason? Is there a national imperative? Um, and so I started thinking about that and I wondered whether the, the sort of cycle that, uh, that s seems incredibly unvirtuous at the moment could be created into a virtuous cycle of savings leading to growth, leading to savings, um, if we were to solve at least one problem in our country which is the abysmal rate of savings of, of households towards their own retirement. 
what we have found to let you in on, uh, on the conclusion uh, before I even go into the paper is that if working South Africans did save appropriately for retirement as well as other important uh, medium and long-term savings needs, the country would have a savings pool that would be in the order of magnitude that if invested appropriately would be able to kickstart our economy into uh, economic growth above the 5.4% target that was laid down by the National Development Plan. And so, although there are many other challenges involved in getting that right, it does seem that this is a, uh, a lever that, if pulled in our country, could make a real and lasting and sustainable difference. So let me explain uh, to you how I'll go about unpacking um, what we did um, in the paper. The first is I'll make a case for, for growth, a case for how economic growth um, has a part to play in uh, solving some of the challenges of our country. The challenge of our country is certainly not economic growth. The challenge is inequality and poverty, unemployment, poor education. Uh, the case I want to make is that economic growth has an important part to play in solving some of those problems. I'll then make a case for the role of savings and investment. So there are a number of things that drive economic growth. It is a complex model for anyone who's gone uh, that far in their economic studies. Uh, but I'll make a case for, for the part that savings and investment can and should play in that. Um, and then I'll explain the centrality of retirement savings and the retirement savings industry within that. Um, explain to you why it is that I've zeroed in on this particular industry. Uh, then I'll unpack, <clears throat> hopefully having um, convinced you that it's a worthwhile thing to have done, I'll unpack how we went about um, doing the research. I'll share with you what our findings are um, and suggest uh, the direction that we can take um, for further efforts in this area. So, um, what would a, an actuarial paper be without a Venn diagram? Um, and uh, Rowan referred to um, uh, some of the interaction that we had during the writing of the paper. And I think this Venn diagram um, explains um, uh, a little bit of, of the perspectives we were coming from. On the one hand, <clears throat> there's economic growth. On the other hand, there's policy and social change. And in the middle, what I've just labeled hope there, is uh, there's a future South Africa that I would hope and expect that most of us have in our hearts. It's something we would love to see our country grow into. Um, a place where we're not, the, we're not world famous for our inequality. We're not world leaders on that, <laughs> on that measure. Let's be world leaders in, in other things. Um, there's a future for South Africa that we can hope for. There's a lot that goes into creating that kind of a future. There's, of course, uh, a lot that needs to be done in the areas of changing the way that our society works, the things that are normal for us to do as working and living individuals. Um, there's a lot that needs to change in terms of policy to support um, a changing business um, environment. Um, but I like to think of the example of a car. You, you can get the direction right with policy and social change, but you still need fuel in the engine to get the car there. And so the basic premise of this paper is that while those things, the, the changes that are required in our country are critically important to get to the destination I'm hoping for, certainly, economic growth is the fuel that will take us to the destination if we have our direction right. And then the second point I wanted to make on the slide is that while all of us in our individual capacity and even to an extent um, in our capacity as, as um, representatives of organizations can have some influence in, in social and policy change. Um, that's uh, uh, limited to second order impact and we can have a, a first order impact on economic growth in this country and so that's uh, why I've focused in on the drivers of economic growth in this paper. <clears throat> to explain the role of savings and investment in this whole quagmire um, I'm using a, a simple uh, graph in comparison. 
um, to make the point that savings and investment is by no means sufficient. It's not the, the solve for all our problems. But empirically, uh, across uh, economies that have grown sustainably over 20 or 30 years at uh, meaningful rates, um, savings and consequent investments is critical. So um, there are a number of figures that have been thrown out there as what, what is an investment rate that South Africa needs to get the economic growth that is necessary to make an impact on unemployment and inequality in this country. Um, a number of figures have been put out there, 25% or thereabouts um, in the National Development Plan. Um, in this paper by Adrian Seville and others, they um, covered a couple of statistics depending on which way you look at it. One of them was just about 28%, and the highest one, so I've chosen that as our high bar, was 30.9%. A very high level of investment when you compare it to the 18.7% that South Africa experienced for the first decade of the century. Um, and the figure for 2015 was 19.5, so we see we hovering about that, that space in South Africa. That's an investment level that enables us pretty much to replenish um, the depreciating assets, fixed assets that we've already invested in as a country. They don't take us meaningly forward as, as a country. Um, and so that's a problem. That's a gap that needs to be um, filled. And, and what this paper is looking at is how do, we, how do we correct that gap? And you could throw out a couple of um, ideas for what one could do. The one would be um, to get the public sector to invest more in fixed capital formation, roads and bridges and, um, and telecommunications. Um, and that, of course, is an important thing to do. Um, practically, though, when you consider the South African situation at the moment, our budget is under enormous um, uh, uh, strain. Um, increasing our um, borrowing uh, would be a challenging thing to do at this time, considering that we're teetering on the edge of um, junk bond status. Um, and one cannot see where uh, government would get the policy freedom to be able to invest much more uh, in infrastructure than they are currently or the capacity to actually affect those investments if the money were to be made available. So government must do as much as they can, but it's unlikely that they'll be the savior in this regard. The next place you can look at is at corporate investments. Now, corporates do invest. Most of the investment we see uh, is from existing government budget and corporate investments replenishing um, their investment stocks. Um, but for Corporates to invest more, and we know that this is a call that particularly Labour and other camps have been ma making at Corporate South Africa, invest your cash pile more. Um, there are um, uh, reasons why they are not investing more, um, and I don't presume to know what goes on in, in all the boards within South Africa, but one can assume that a more inviting policy environment, um, infrastructure and investment, that those are um, uh, fairly well accepted methods to encourage um, industry to invest more. So you can see that these two, um, uh, two approaches are somewhat linked, uh, that investment um, spending from corporates would be encouraged by a better public sector um, environment created. The third one, um, somewhat linked to the other two but also a little bit separate, is foreign investment. One doesn't have to necessarily um, create the funds within one's own country for direct investment. Um, and, but this is a little bit of a Hail Mary in some ways. It's, it's sort of um, saying, well, <laughs> uh, we don't think it's a good idea to invest here, but maybe someone else will. Um, and I suppose the logic there, which does um, have some standing, is that in a sense, and it's not uh, entirely true or the only truth about our continent, in a sense we are the gateway to sub-Saharan Africa, or we can be if we position ourselves correctly. So there is a certain logic in inviting foreigners to invest in South Africa and invest through South Africa into the rest of Africa. So those are all things that can be done but have their own challenges, um, and their challenges present themselves immediately. Uh, what struck me, though, um, and kind of summarizes the position I've taken on this is um, a quote that comes out of um, a report from the Commission on Growth and Development um, that looked at the, um, the economic growth across, across a wide range of developing economies over a 30-year period and had this 
to say that there is no case of a sustained high investment path not backed up by high domestic savings. And so while all of the, the, the three points above are important, they form a, a part of the puzzle, um, an underlying and undergirding um, uh, foundation of domestic savings is important, critical, I would say, for our country to get onto a path that includes high investment and does that sustainably. So having made the case for economic growth, having made the case for savings and investment within that, um, and particularly domestic savings, where is that domestic savings going to come from? And you can only look in three places. One is for government to save more. The other is for corporates to save more. And thirdly, for households to save more. Now, government uh, is really, frankly, unlikely to be able to save much at all, certainly not more than they currently are uh, saving or dissaving at the moment, um, for obvious uh, reasons that are apparent to everyone um, uh, and, and are the, the subject of much media um, speculation and interest at the moment. Corporates are less... Um, uh, it's a less clear-cut case than uh, with government. But it's worth noting that the national savings statistic for South Africa at the moment, sitting at 16.4% of GDP, is almost all carried by corporates. <clears throat> so the saving that does go on in our country at the moment is by corporates. What there is scope for, not, not scope for much more savings, but there's scope for better investment, for further investment of that um, savings, as I pointed out in the previous slide. But really for new savings into our economy, there's only one place to look, and that's households. Households in South Africa have a negative net savings rate. I'm sure you are aware of that. Um, and so before you dive into the reasons why that's really hard to do, uh, just looking at it at a high level and comparing South Africa to the experience of other um, economies with low um, uh, incomes per capita, South Africa's savings are too low, and there has got to be scope somehow to increase those savings. Um, but I don't want to minimize the challenges here. Our unbelievably high dependency rates is one of the chief causes why households, even when their incomes uh, increase or look favorable or, or okay relative to other economies, find it so hard to save. What's leading to that is such high unemployment, particularly amongst the youth, um, and that has a uh, a knock-on impact from and to um, income growth uh, within households. So it's an incredibly hard thing to get right, I recognize. But if one is to get um, higher domestic savings in South Africa, the place to look must surely be with households. So what can we do um, to help households to save more? Um, and what is the role of our industry within that? In order to unpack that, um, I want to look at this rather simplistic um, value chain. Um, let's start up at the top. If you were to increase household savings, um, there could be a link through to economic growth. That link is if you were to get those savings to be invested appropriately. Um, and the primary responsibility for doing that is supportive policy um, uh, that supports um, uh, investment in businesses and in infrastructure. If you were to get that right, people saved more, that saving was converted into um, investment which led to economic growth, you would want that and hope that that would use its potential to increase jobs and increase um, income. In order to do that, um, you would look to um, policy that promotes labor-intensive industry particularly, we know that um, South Africa's manufacturing industry, for example, is, um, is far um, lower weight in our economy than it should be. Um, and you look for policy that promotes income distribution. Um, so whether that be tax policies or policy, labor practice policies, policies that um, distribute the income to those new jobs that are being created. If those jobs are created, those incomes increase, <clears throat> One would hope that those jobs are created uh, amongst the youth, which is the particular alarming problem that um, South Africa faces, our unbelievably high youth 
unemployment and therefore youth dependency ratios. Um, and for that to work, you need um, policy that reforms education primarily. That really is the big ticket item for South Africa. And I know within the actual society and across business, a lot of people are chipping away at this problem. Um, but um, uh, government systemic nationwide policy to change our education system is important. And then also, though, efforts have been made into this realm, um, uh, more um, appropriate and effective policy to promote skills development as well as industry coming on board um, in, in uh, following through with that uh, would be what helps this chain in, in the link not to break. Those two things together, more jobs, more income, more jobs amongst the youth uh, would uh, automatically, naturally um, lead to increasing disposable income. And then to finally close that loop, to create the virtuous cycle, you need that increasing disposable income to be converted into increased household savings. And this really is where I see the role of industry um, as as being the most poignant, the place where we as, uh, as a savings and investment industry can do the most to have a direct impact on the behavior that households uh, display, the kinds of habits that are built into our society um, around savings and investments and the management of money. <clears throat> and so understanding this little virtuous cycle, one can see why I've zeroed in on what it is that private sector um, can do to try and support the existence of um, this virtuous cycle in South Africa. One can still ask the question, though, why have I zeroed in on the retirement savings industry? There's a lot other that we do. There's our banking industry. There um, are uh, individual retail-type um, businesses in South Africa that are large and, and thriving. But I focused in on the retirement savings industry for a couple of reasons. The one is that retirement savings are uh, usually um, longer term than other types of savings. <laughs> and I position that carefully. They're not long term full stop um, because of the behavior that we see within retirement funds. But they are far longer term than any other um, type of savings in our, in our country. And long term investments are the kinds of investments Long-term savings are the kinds of savings that can be used for direct long-term investments, which is the kind of investment that our country needs. The second reason is that the retirement industry in South Africa is an incredibly well-established, uh, broadly integrated into society system. Um, and it has a lot of smart people working within it, people who to um, some degree are already starting to think creatively um, about how to find holistic solutions to the problems of savings within our country. Thirdly, there are policy tailwinds. Government um, has identified that this is an area that um, uh, deserves um, their efforts in improving. Um, we've seen them looking for ways to increase the coverage of the retirement industry, seeking ways to improve incentives by increasing the tax-exempt um, cap on income up to 27.5%, and looking for ways to further improve the efficiency of this industry so that those participating in it get the best outcome that um, they possibly can. Fourthly, um, retirement savings as a kind of building block is uh, of personal, individual um, importance. If you're going to do something um, that has theoretical benefits, um, how much better if when brought down to the, to the position of the household or to the level of the household, making those changes, getting it right, um, is the right thing to do. Almost always the right thing to do to help people to um, save more for the longer term. And then fifthly, uh, this industry is greatly underutilized. And this is something that I'm not the first person to point out. This is not an original thought at all. Um, but that we have this wide infrastructure, we have employers involved quite heavily in the running of these um, retirement funds, and all of that intellectual capital and infrastructure is used um, quite um, uh, in quite a focused uh, way 
to collect the retirement fund savings that um, happen to be um, happen to be the status quo, um, and they could be used much. That infrastructure could be used much more effectively um, by benefiting from the behavioural tools that are available within settings like employer groups. Uh, by benefiting from the efficiencies that come through payroll deductions, by benefiting from the efficiency that comes through um, saving into vehicles that have institutional fees, um, and by benefiting from the employer sponsorship um, that you get along with uh, a retirement fund. So I think the retirement fund industry, the retirement savings industry, is uniquely and uh, head and shoulders above the others positioned uh, for impact uh, in this space. So that's why I've looked at this particular industry and tried to answer the question that I have. Um, because um, at, at least half of you will be actuaries who care about the data. Um, I'll tell you um, how we went about um, trying to make a case here. Um, the first thing we did was collect data. We collected uh, data from uh, a CESA from the FSB and from the South African Reserve Bank. <clears throat> uh, and we found that really hard to do. Um, uh, my first point is, my goodness, it's hard to, um, to, to come to uh, meaningful conclusions by accessing the data that people put a lot of effort into contributing to. Um, and so I'll touch on that a little bit later, but both the, the quality of the data and the categorization of the data is not useful, really, for decision-making. And I think that that's um, something that deserves um, uh, further effort. But then what we did do with what we have, um, we built up a view of net savings in the retirement industry. So we used um, the sources that we had to cobble together a full picture of the retirement industry, including living annuities and life annuities that um, are not measured by the Financial Services Board, um, and uh, got to a statistic for what the net uh, flow in and out of retirement savings was in 2015, and that is negative 4.6%. Okay. Just going to let that one sink in for a second. The retirement savings industry has a negative cash flow. Moving on, we then tested the sensitivity of various levers that we could pull into that uh, retirement savings industry and uh, tested not so much the impact on that negative 4.6%, but the impact that that would have when rolled up into the national savings statistic. So our national saving statistic is 16.4% of GDP. Uh, that was the 2015 figure. Um, and we saw what the impact on that 16.4% would be if we were to pull uh, various theoretical levers. The levers that we pulled um, were the first two um, revolving around preservation. We had to make assumptions about what the current levels of preservation are for withdrawals, number one, and for um, retrenchments, number two. Um, and then uh, imagined a future where everyone was preserving 100% um, of their funds, which is obviously not realistic, but it gives you a sense of the order of magnitude of this lever if it were to be pulled. Thirdly, we looked at um, contributions, the actual contribution level. We again had to make an assumption uh, what that is as a percentage of salaries um, and used um, a number of industry surveys that have been put out there um, to come to a, a sort of average figure of 13%. And we um, saw what would happen if one increased that to the tax allowable 27.5%. The next three um, levers are increasing the coverage. If you were to increase the coverage to everyone who's earning, and they saved that 27.5% uh, on their earnings. What would the impact of that be? If you were to increase, include the earnings that people have, not just through salaries, but through investments, dividends, rental yield, et cetera. Um, and then finally, increase what, uh, include what they get through gross operating surpluses, through sole traders, et cetera. Um, uh, what would that impact be? So if people were saving on all their income, not just their salary income. <clears throat> and then... Seventhly and finally, we increased that contribution percentage to 40%, which sounds like an awful lot of money. 
Um, but the case has been made previously, not by me, that um, if you were to consider all of a person's really important longer-term savings needs, such as savings for children's education, savings for um, a deposit for a house, um, saving for retirement, saving for post-retirement medical aid, those sorts of things, that the percentage of your income that you would need to save is far higher than the 40% I've put here. Um, so I've uh, sort of chosen 40% as a bit of a lowball figure um, if people, if one were to consider all of the savings needs, the important medium to long-term savings needs of an individual, um, and to save those through the retirement industry as opposed to in a number of different spaces um, across different industries. <clears throat> the impact of those levers is displayed here in this table. The first um, column of that table shows you what the individual impact of each lever is, and the column um, on the end shows you what the cumulative impact is if you build up pulling each of those levers and remain, uh, uh, leave them remain pulled. <clears throat> what you can see uh, right at the bottom right is that by pulling all of these levers, you get to a savings figure for South Africa of 38% which is obviously much higher than the high bar figure of 30.9% that, um, that I listed earlier as a required investment rate for South Africa. And so the, the sort of starting uh, picture here is this is worth a little bit more uh, uh, of a deeper look. There's something here. The order of magnitude is meaningful on a national basis. When you look into the actual um, uh, implications of each of the levers, um, it's clear that increasing the percentage that people contribute currently is by far the strongest lever. Um, by fixing preservation plus increasing to 27.5%, you get to a savings rate of 24%. And that's already within the realm of some of the estimates of the investment rate that South Africa needs. Um, and then by increasing that even further, um, you can get well uh, up towards 30 and even be um, beyond 30% um, for South Africa. So what do I conclude? Um, I conclude looking at that, um, that if everyone were to save correctly, save appropriately for their own personal needs, that that level of savings in our country would be sufficient um, to provide an a pool of investable funds that, if invested appropriately, would produce, would potentially produce GDP growth above 5%, which is what the National Development Plan says, um, and a, a number of people would agree, is an important level of growth in our economy in order to fuel the car if it's heading in the right direction towards reducing inequality. My corollary, really, to that is that this is an industry the retirement savings industry as a whole, that is a worthy recipient of government and corporate focus. And really, I can't say much more than that. I, I, I can't say what the answer is, Rowan. Terribly sorry. Um, but I can say that it's worth it. For those of us who are in this industry and trying to improve things, it is worth it. Uh, it's worth it not just for the individuals you help. It's worth it not just for your bottom line, it's worth it for our country. Uh, we can do heavy lifting in our country um, as an industry. I had two sort of additional conclusions that I didn't want to lose, but are not directly linked to that. The one is that the current system in itself needs work. Our outflows are higher than our inflows. That cannot be. Um, and the other is that contribution amount and not preservation is the most effective lever. And the reason I say that is that a lot of political will has been expended on trying to fix the preservation leak out of the retirement industry. It, it is important. And over the long term, if everything saved is not preserved, we get the situation we are in at the moment of negative um, savings into the industry. But really, the biggest lever that can be pulled is for people to save a higher percentage. Um, and obviously, that must be accompanied with them viewing their retirement savings appropriately, a change in mindset about what they're doing. Are they saving in order to pay down their debt next year, or are they saving for their longer term? And that um, takes me really to um, just...
pose a couple of questions and suggest where, where one can go from here. Um, the first suggestion is that uh, if it would not be wasted uh, in trying to um, assist our, the various bodies within our industry to collect and collate and categorize the data that's produced by industry in a way that helps government and business to make appropriate decisions, to draw correct conclusions. Um, the second one, really, and that's probably more my message to this room, is how do we work on making this a reality? Some of the questions that, that might spur those answers <clears throat> is uh, how could our current retirement savings system be used to facilitate multi-need savings? So this idea that we can use the infrastructure more widely is not a new one, as I've said, but how do we make it practically um, implementable? How can the system encourage higher savings rate? We have not done even nearly enough to really encourage higher savings rate. What we've done is improve the quality of our communications, largely. But there are a bunch of levers that are not rocket science that, as an industry, we haven't begun to pull. And uh, perhaps we can um, lift those up in, in the priority rankings of our various organizations. And then distinct from that, but it sounds quite similar, what can be done to help people to save more? Um, why that's distinct from the one before is um, we may encourage appropriately uh, more savings, um, but really at the bottom of it, at the heart of it, we must be able to do something to help individuals to um, overcome the obstacles, the real reasons why they are not saving more. And so we need to get more creative around, for example, debt rehabilitation programs and, and the sorts of things that enable people to get from where they are to a position where they are, are financially more healthy. And then finally, I suppose pulling this all together, we've got a system currently. Uh, it works okay. What do we do to create out of that system an ecosystem that really does drive higher savings and improved financial health? An ecosystem that I like to think of uh, a dam versus a river. At the moment, our system is like a dam. You can come and jump into it, and at any point, step out and leave. Um, and our system should be more like a river. You jump in, and it sweeps you somewhere. It takes you to a destination. Um, and I don't think we've got that right yet. How do we make our ecosystem one that sweeps you along towards uh, a future that is in your interests and collectively in the interests of our country. So I'll leave you with those thoughts uh, and I'm happy to take questions. Guy, thanks for this presentation. It's been rather, good, you know, rather fun to watch, and rather insightful. So, you know, nice to to see some work is being done looking at the industry in its entirety. I do have a question about. I'm going to call it. How do you prime the pump? So you talk about creating a virtuous circle and getting it going. If I think about a car, you know, once the engine's running, it runs, but you've got to have something to get it going. And how do you get it going? And the thing which I'm worried about is if you get it going in the wrong way, could you end up creating, you know, actually creating something which is bad rather than something that's good? And what I'm really worried about is if suddenly people started saving more and so they stopped consuming, what does the impact, you know, what does the impact look like on the economy? And do we end up effectively killing the thing that we were trying to create in the first place or trying to grow in the first place? Um, thanks, Peter, for that awful question. Um, yeah, good question. Um, for those who maybe didn't catch it, if you were to kickstart this virtuous cycle by getting everybody to stop consuming and save instead, wouldn't our consumer 
uh, consumption-driven economy falter? Wouldn't, wouldn't the, the um, starter motor falter? Um, I'm no expert. I, I believe that there are, there are two views to that. Some people believe it would, and some people believe it wouldn't. That having that savings um, in a pool that can be invested productively would create, would start the motor, and would start it in a way that uh, is not destructive to the health of that motor. So every time we pull that lever of consumption-led growth, we're in a way depleting um, ourselves a little bit more. Um, and I, I sort of think of it uh, logically as a layperson with regards to economics, but that's, that's how I would see it. Up here? Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, guy, uh, nice presentation. Actually, I like the first slide um, and the first slide. Uh, last and first were nice uh, slides. Where in the first slide you had the Venn diagrams and you had um, social and policy changes that you were talking about. And in the last slide, you were, you, one of your questions was about what can we do to actually increase our household savings. I don't have the answer to the last question, but as to why we're not actually saving more, um, there can be an answer to that. Um, the thing is, for us to actually can save more on a long-term basis, the government can actually create incentives for us to can save more, and they can actually try by tax deductions that we have on retirement. But be that as it may, we are not actually seeing the household saving going up. Now, the problem is, in my view, in my humble opinion, is that South Africa is a unique country in a very, very, very... Uh, nice or worst way. The legacy of South Africa is such that success is determined by how you consume certain things, how you go into debt, how you can drive a Maserati. So that is the legacy of South Africa. And no matter how much we tell people that you have to save for retirement and things like that, it's just not in the DNA of this country. The DNA of this country was such that for a long period of time, we have been embedded in this way of uh, perceiving success as consumption, basically, and consuming with the money that you don't have. And people just don't see retirement as something that is actually a worthwhile thing. It's more of a comment than a question, as, uh, uh, basically. Yeah. Um, I would like to comment on that, though. I think that's a great uh, point. Uh, perhaps sometimes uh, made... Um, too generally, as if that is the um, unavoidable truth for all South Africans. And I, I don't believe that that's the case. I don't believe that, um, that uh, overconsumption and, uh, and, and the, that kind of view of money is true for everybody and is true forever. I imagine when you live for a few years with debt hanging over your head and an unsupportable lifestyle, you grow quite weary of that quite quickly. Um, it's not a fun place to be. Um, and I'm, uh, what it does highlight for me, though, is that the solution is requires, um, as Rowan was encouraging us, for us to get closer to people and really understand what's going on. It's, this is behavioral more than it's structural. Um, the government has raised the tax <laughs> deductible limit, and it's made next to no difference. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. Um, just a comment. I think we get the conspicuous c consumption. There's a very high correlation when you have a society that becomes highly unequal. But to get back to a really important point here, are we not our own worst enemy when we describe this thing as the retirement savings industry? Now, I realize that's what legislatively it's, we've been driven into. But there's a message there that minus 4.6%. And the message is we don't give a stuff about retirement. Do we care about savings? The answer there is yes, we do. So why are we not as an industry focusing on the issue of compulsory savings? Because it does have to be compulsory. But savings that will achieve the kind of social mobility that will address the inequality issues, that will address the conspicuous consumption. So why? Do we not have a greater focus as an industry in helping that individual not just to get to some end goal over here, but that whole journey? Mm -hmm. Why not? Because we got handed this 
gift retirement savings on a platter by the government. It's a freebie, practically. We don't have to go out and market to get it. We just get it. But if we did something hugely creative with it and used these lobbied, maybe through the employers, because probably legislation isn't going to change shortly, but it's not necessarily an employer's interest to support retirement savings. It is in an employer's interest to support savings so by, whereby individuals don't fall off the you know, shelf, so to speak. So I think we as an industry need to just change our perspective on what we can do around changing that employer benefit and not focusing just on retirement. Can I comment on that with, uh, with an action? Totally agree. Beautiful point. Thank you. Guy, thank you uh, to you and Keegan for this work. I think it's actually a very useful uh, start of a debate, um, far from the end of it. Um, just don't want to make two comments. The first is, is I think that you, you, you made the point that the government actually gave us new ways to save tax efficient ways and so on, and it hasn't made much difference. Because the fact of the matter is that most people are living from hand to mouth, um, and they don't have money to save. Um, which is, and, and when, when there are job losses, people actually uh, cash in their benefits um, because that actually gives them something, some income to live on. Um, the, where we need to, the lever we need to pull is the uh, high amount of corporate saving. The problem, the simple fact of the matter is that corporates are saving not, and, not re and not investing because they don't actually have faith in this country at the moment. You have a government who can charitably describe as schizophrenic to, to investment and a labor, a labor movement that's inimical to, to investment, okay? foreign and local. So what, so what do companies do that are making money? They take the logical, rational decision, which is to hold on to that money they, and, and invest it overseas. And that's why you have so many South African companies who are actually setting up operations in every other part of the world by South Africa. So you need to actually get, get, you need to get public policy straight, such that government welcomes foreign investment. They say we're open to investment, but that's so simply rubbish. Okay? You look at Walmart uh, when, when they came in to buy MassMart as, as a classic example of it. So you need to get public policy right. You need to actually, that, that will, and, and you need to sort out the labor problem, and that I don't know how you solve that. I honestly don't. Um, but you need to actually get those two sorted out, and then, gov and then firms in South Africa will actually build new factories, employ more people, generate gr economic growth, generate income, and, the, and that virtuous circle starts. But until such time, because essentially what's happening is corporates that are making money are sucking that money aside and actually putting it and, and setting it offshore. And, you know, I'm, also, I'm doing the same thing in my own personal capacity as well, um, simply because I don't, I, I don't have faith in, in, in this country at this moment. Yeah, I, I presume we're out of time. Let me just comment on that quickly. <laughs> I hope we're out of time. <laughs> no, thanks, Anthony. I mean, I think you express um, a, a sort of summary of the situation that a lot of people um, agree with. Um, just to say something quickly, if I may, Rowan, um, I was at a talk by Professor Jeffrey Sachs recently, which was really insightful, and he, in, in deep understanding of the African and South African situation, brought it down to three things. Improved governance, uh, which he had some quite practical ideas on, on what that meant. Improved education and infrastructure investment. Um, because it's got to start somewhere, and you see, that those are the kind of uh, foundations, drivers of all of the other uh, issues. That they're the, the worthwhile places to start. And I believe our government and industry in partnership are trying to solve those problems. I'm somewhat more optimistic than you. I would like to say though that while that's somewhat true, um, corporates can invest a whole lot more, foreign investment can invest a whole lot more, and consumers are stretched. We think always of the example of a consumer who is genuinely for their circumstances for now, totally unable to save a cent and then write it off. But there are many consumers who in their current situation now 
if they took appropriate steps and, and approached it correctly, within a year or two would have space in their budgets to save appropriately for their, for their needs. And, and that's who I have in mind. I'm, I'm very pleased that this has generated some emotive uh, debate, and I think it is best served over a bottle of wine at dinner tonight. Uh, beware anybody who's at Anthony's table. <laughs> um, I, I think the key for me is, is again, going back to the, to the opening address, these are big problems, and people are equipped to solve small problems. And what it is that we need to do is to help South Africans out there understand that this isn't necessarily a big problem, uh, but a small one. Um, as South Africans, we have a tendency to move between optimism and pessimism at the extreme. You just need to have a look at our current cricket and rugby performance to, to sort of understand that. Um, and I'd like to think that Guy's given us an element of optimism in terms of the way that we can go about having the right conversations to solve this problem. Um, one thing that I would warn in terms of the NDP document, which we tend to hold up as one of those sort of optimistic um, pieces of paper that will, will solve things for us, is it assumes economic growth will equal more jobs, will e equal a reduction in this income dispersion, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, and that's something that we need to keep an eye on as a country. And then just one final comment just because you tend to know me as the preservation bunny, you know, for me, preservation is, is a key. The analysis looks very much at an income statement problem and not a balance sheet problem. And so that's why it sort of highlights how we, we, we uplift savings, we solve the sort of savings rate. Uh, but we really need to help South African households solve their balance sheet problem. To, to Anne's point, to shore up that balance sheet through, through lots of different savings, to, to cover lots of different needs, to, to tie them through across those various emergencies. And that's why we have insurance, because we don't always have that balance sheet. And so if we move on now to sort of Hannah's session, where we were looking at incorporating healthcare data into life insurance products, pricing and design, how can we help those people out there with the information that we have achieve cheap insurance? Um, I, I certainly sort of consider our clients who don't tend to understand why if we're sitting with healthcare data, why we can't apply it in the insurance environment and they have to go for very uncomfortable sort of medical underwriting. Um, and for me, that's certainly a pain point in the industry. And if it's something that we don't address, um, it opens up a significant amount of disruption within our industry. And all of a sudden, you know, Google will come in and use big data. So. Hannah's hopefully going to give us a sense of what the opportunities are for us in this industry to change the way that we do underwriting, to change the way that we provide insurance to individuals in, in a more sort of accessible, meaningful way, and we change the way that we as insurance companies and investment companies on, in, in the sort of same breath um, can connect with our clients 